and they said among themselves, Why do the lords of the west sit there in peace, unending, while we must die and go we know not whither, leaving our home and all that we have made? Welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined by your host, Jen, a.k.a. Iarian. Ooh, ooh, all right, the unknown character. Uh, new, and new character, Isildur's sissy. His sissy Isildur's face. Isildur's Which, of sister. course, is what he's going to call her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious about this character. And I am joined today by Michael, a.k.a. Elendil. Oh, so I'm your dad. Just call me daddy the rest of this episode. <laughs> it's a family affair. And for our listeners, that was not an inappropriate remark. It was consistent with the lore, okay? It was consistent with the lore, not inappropriate for me to require Jen to call me daddy. <laughs> well, uh, we're getting it. We're, we're getting, getting an R rating here. on our next review. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> well, today is another episode all about the Rings of Power, so consider this your spoiler warning. Uh, on July 13th, Entertainment Magazine released two articles and eight images, all focusing on Numenor. So that will be our main event today. And I think I'm, we had mentioned in our last episode that that kind of broke my brain because I was geared up for the, the the teaser, which ended up being a trailer, to drop the next day. And then lo and behold, they just dump all this great Numenor information on us, um, you know, the evening before. And we really haven't gotten much Numenor yeah, stuff it was at a, all to date. It was fun to get all of it at once. That's for sure. It was exciting. Um, but before we dive in, a little reminder that the best way to support us is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We know there's a lot of you out there listening, um, and we have only got a few reviews. So we would just love it if you go out um, to your keyboards and leave a little note. It really helps other people to find us. And we want this to be a watch party. So when the show drops, we want this to be a true party and build the community. So Please like, subscribe, and share. And, you know, we will be partying, whether you're partying or not. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's sad when you party <laughs> alone. It's sad to drink alone. But at least I always have you, Jen, and you'll you'll be drinking with me. I got uh, a nice summer ale here that I'm drinking. It's uh, really hot here at the Secret Island um, where we record. So, uh, uh, and I like that you're, you got a little summer drink yourself. I do. I'm drinking a little Prosecco here. Um, it's definitely a lovely summer day here in the Bay Area, and we're talking about one of my favorite things to talk about. So listen along, follow along. We're going to take you on a Numenorean journey today. Uh, before we do that, we've got a little news about the Watch Party Network. Uh, as you know, we have not just a Watch Party Lord of the Rings, but Watch Party's got a Wheel of Time podcast. Totally separate group of hosts, and a, a great group, um, really fun show that they put on. Uh, we've been hinting that Watch Party would be releasing a new podcast about Game of Thrones, but today we want to do more than hint and confirm that a Watch Party of Ice and Fire will be hitting the airwaves very soon. The pod will be about anything and everything related to A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, and of course their focus out of the gate will be the upcoming HBO series House of the Dragon, which is premiering on August 21st. So the HBO show is right around the corner. And so is Watch Party's pod all about it. Um, and so we're excited about that. So excited. We've got five fantastic hosts, Morgan, Constance, Sam, Solar, and Uzma. 
And although you'll get the same lively discussions you've come to expect from Watch Party Podcasts, they're also going to do some really creative things that are unlike anything you hear on Watch Party Lord of the Rings or Watch Party Wheel of Time. So even though the pod is not released yet, it will be very soon. So keep your ears and eyes open for an official announcement of the premiere date for A Watch Party of Ice and Fire. All right. So let's get to the news, huh? I've been jonesing to talk about Numenor for ages. Um, and I'm going to make us wait just a little bit longer because in addition to the Numenor article, they've just been dumping stuff on us. This is like insane. They've given us nothing, nothing, nothing. And then all of a sudden, it's just a deluge of material. Um, Amazon released nine new full body character posters. And uh, I remember... The olden times when the only posters they released were of people's hands, and we were really excited about hands. Um, now we get faces um, and a whole lot more. But it's not as interesting because now we know we've seen a trailer, we've seen teasers, so we've actually seen these characters. So the reveal of their faces in, in posters is not as uh, as shocking or exciting, but is worth announcing because um, those posters do look really good, um, and I just continue to like the design i like what we see from from these posters and the approach that amazon's taking yeah absolutely they are beautiful and um, people have gone through every detail about them but the main takeaway for me is that you know visually we're just getting stunning stunning costumes and man all these characters are blowing my mind the casting choices are blowing my mind there's a few that i have some some criticisms of but for the most part can't wait to see these actors shine in their roles who are the actors you have criticisms of? Let's spill the tea right now. Call them out. Uh, okay, right now. I am still, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I'm really thrown off by the casting choice for uh, Kel Brimbor. It's just not, mm. I, I wonder why he's so much older than the other actors. So he's so much older than Galadriel, so much older than Elrond. And actually he and Galadriel should be around the same age or they should be, in my mind, they should look the same age, right? Right, right. Um, he's so much older and more um, mature and regal looking than I pictured him. This is supposed to be a smith. Right. So just some, there's some sort of disconnect for me there. I, I'm curious to see what they do with the character, but I think I'm a little disappointed in... Um, it just doesn't fit for me. It doesn't fit well. Yeah. That casting choice. Yeah. I, I, and, I don't know that it fit you know, for have... anybody, which is the thing. You know, I, I, whether people are on a different spectrum of like whether they don't like it or whether they're okay with it. But I don't know that there's been anybody that's like, oh, that's exactly what I pictured in my mind. Um, but that being said, I've kind of gotten over it a little bit. Uh, you know, yes, he does look older than Galadriel. And I understand the issue with like, well, they should be around the same age. But also, it's not like it's not that clear from Tolkien's text or his descriptions of like, okay, when an elf becomes fully mature, it's not like, you know, they hit 30 and then they're in stasis, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say it like that. He doesn't make that clear that that's what happens. You know, they reach maturity. They, there's some aging that continues. We learned that from um, Nature of Middle Earth. Tolkien goes to great lengths to explore the aging patterns of elves and he does a lot of different versions of it. But there's no reason to think that like Celebrimbor's look when he reaches maturity should necessarily be the same youthfulness as Galadriel's look when she reaches maturity. You know, like the the mature adult look that they pause on doesn't have to be at the exact same age, you know, the exact same like human age. So, you know, Celebrimbor's like 50. Some get really unlucky, just like 
Just like humans. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. Glidel just got the really good genes. She gets to be 30. Kelly Brimbor is stuck at 50. Not there's anything wrong with being 50. I uh, am looking forward <laughs> to that myself someday. Far Maybe he was a smoker and, you know, beat up. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't taking he care of himself. Body, so you know, he, he aged all that time over the leaning over the forge. Yeah, just it, it wears on you. Yeah. Well, the one poster that I wanted to pause on, and I think they're all worth looking at. They're beautiful posters. But uh, we got a great another shot of Durin the Fourth, played by Owen Arthur, and he's one of my favorite casting choices, just in terms of look and the design, um, which is separate from the actor. But it's like the design of the dwarves in general. I'm enjoying seeing seeing what they've done with it. And we've gotten some Kurth runes on several of the Dwarven posters. Here he's holding a hammer uh, slung across his back because he's just awesome like that. And you can see some Kurth runes near the head of the hammer. And uh, because there are so many brilliant Tolkien fans on on Twitter and elsewhere, uh, you can pretty quickly find the translation by somebody. Uh, And I haven't vetted this myself, nor am I qualified to. (laughs) So hopefully this is correct. But... um, there was someone on Twitter who really sounded like they knew what they were talking about and said it said, iron in our hands. It seems like they inscribe a lot of their swords and, and, and hammers, and we haven't talked about Gilgalad, but Gilgalad's spear is inscribed, and the inscriptions are very like functional, uh, at least for the dwarves, is very, very functional. Gilgalad's is a little more poetic, but we'll talk about that in a different episode. Yeah, this is a really cool shot. I mean, he looks like such a powerhouse here. Yeah. You know, he's, he's giving you the stink eye kind of, you know, his head's up, you know, he's got a, like, what? What's up? What's up, bro? You're going to mess with me? He's just a proud just dwarf. He's a proud king yeah. of the dwarves. And we get, uh, also worth noting in these posters is our first kind of detailed shot of Adar. We saw him in the early set of posters with just his hands, but uh, not his face, nothing more. And here we finally get an image of Adar. He's still very much obscured in shadow, which obscures a lot of the details on his costume and things like that. But if you're finally hoping to get a glimpse of Adar, who's supposed to be our season one antagonist, you've got one um, in these posters. That being said, there is some cool stuff in here, but I don't want to talk about it today. I think let's save it for a future episode because I have a hunch that Adar will probably be featured in the next trailer we get or in future marketing materials. So we'll have more to talk about. And I, I think we're going to end up doing like a whole eight hour episode um, very soon, probably before the series airs. And I want to lump this in with that. Definitely. Because he's going, as far as we understand, he's going to be the main bad guy for this first season. Right. So we will spend a lot of time talking about him in the future. Stay tuned. Yeah. And the last poster that I, I, I want to touch on before we move on to the text of the articles is the shot of Muriel and we get Muriel sort of looking up and she is looking off into the distance sort of uh, off camera and she's wearing the most kick-ass helmet I have ever seen uh, with the mm-hmm. sun of Numenor. You know, we've seen it emblazoned on all the shields and, and everywhere. So the, the sun iconography is really strong in Numenor. That's what they've gone with um, for the show. And as the queen... I guess she herself is the sun, which is kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> the ruler would put themselves at the center of the universe symbolically. <laughs> uh, uh, but right. her helmet is the sun and it's got giant spikes coming out. And it is, it's like bordering on absurd in a way, but 
it, like I'm objectively looking at it and thinking like this is the type of thing that is close to being absurd, but I don't feel like it's absurd at all. I 100% think it is totally awesome. The thing about Numenor, it was a it was an ex, it was a decadent, um, elaborate society that cared very much about aesthetics. I mean, this was the greatest civilization mm-hmm. of mankind. It was blessed by the gods. And um, I think the aesthetics, their clothing and their buildings and their armor reflected that, right? So more is more when you're talking about the Numenorians. Um, so if it seems over the top, I think it should be over the top. That's right. what I want out of Numenor attire, Numenorian attire, right? Yeah. And she wears it very well. well. She's just- She does. Yeah. Great. Oh, yeah. One question I have is what is whether this helmet is a functional helmet. Like, will she ride this- right into battle wearing this helmet and will she use those spikes as a weapon? Um, because that's when it would kind of jump the shark for me, right? Because I've seen that in fantasy things before and even it's kind of like reminds me of The Hobbit just where the the armor is so absurd. Like if she's, if I see a scene of her whipping her head around and, you know, stabbing somebody with her helmet, I'm uh, that's going to be too much for me. Like it'll take me out of it, I'm almost sure. Well, there is a shot of her wearing a headpiece that we may get to as i know yeah as they're charging <laughs> so you we'll see maybe it was designed in such a way that it will never fall off <laughs> who knows it's got a chin strap it's got a chin strap so you know it, it's a little loose right there but maybe she tightens it up when she's gonna ready to do a head stab yeah i mean she can't compromise the look just for practicality since when have people done that that's true fashion first <laughs> that's the <laughs> title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's get into the articles there were actually two articles released by uh, entertainment magazine basically simultaneously mm-hmm. um you know i'm a little puzzled i guess i don't understand how the media landscape works why <laughs> we're gonna do a premiere uh, an exclusive article and also a- another article that is very very similar and uses the same images and overlaps in terms of content like i don't understand <laughs> and it's gonna be released at the same time um, I don't understand that, but hey, two articles are better than one. So it gives us more to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and again, it's all about Numenor. So this is the Numenor feature. And the first thing I, I noticed that jumped out at me, and it's kind of how they started the main article is that the city of Numenor is a fully built set. Mm-hmm. They built an entire island city, um, which We've heard great things about their emphasis on practical effects. There's not going to be too much crazy CGI. And okay, they built a whole city, and that really feeds into that. And it reminds me of the Peter Jackson films, how they built Rohan, Mm -hmm. you know, and they really built it, not just to be like a flimsy set. They had to build it to withstand really, really high winds. The elements. uh, Because the location that they built it in, the, the elements were serious. Like, so they fully engineered it to be a solid, stable structure that could withstand the elements. And it sounds like they did a similar thing here. Uh, I mean, um, a quote from the article, quote, the crew had essentially built an entire seaside city from the ground up, stone by stone, as he, and that's referring to uh, the director for the couple of the episodes, as he wandered through the narrow alleyways and past the ship docked in the harbor, he felt truly transported to Middle Earth. And later in the article, quote, we were there for weeks, but every day I'd notice a new detail I'd never seen before like graffiti etched into weathered stone or a small shrine. There was a whole wall made out of oyster shells. Every corner you'd turn, there was just so mm. much storytelling. Beautiful. Oh, man. Yeah, that I love that. I love the bit about obsessive detail. 
That is exactly what we want to hear. And also the the phrase transported or the word transported. That's a word we've used a lot on this podcast. And so it's really exciting to hear that reflected in somebody who was there. That they they truly felt right. like this was the Middle Earth they were hoping for. And I think this was such a smart decision. Later in the article, they say, you know, we wanted to create a place that hadn't existed before so that, you know, it could it could be totally new to the fandom. And it, if they execute it well, I think nobody's going to have an issue because we might not be as attached to the images of Numenor yet. Mm-hmm. Um because we right. haven't seen it on screen yet. So they, they really had an opportunity right. here to invent something, and it sounds like they took it very seriously. Yeah, and you touch on what I think makes this the topic of our podcast today, Numenor, such a fascinating one. We've, as they point out in the article, we've never seen Numenor depicted in any you know major or even non-major. Like I, I can't think of any like cartoon versions or anything um, other than uh, art uh, artistry by like John Howe or Ted Naismith, but no movie or show has ever depicted Numenor before. And we know very little about the design aesthetic. Um, and so they would really have to, to draw deep and extrapolate based on, all right, well, what's the iconography of Gondor? And to what extent is that reflective of the, the iconography and design aesthetics of the Numenorians thousands of years before? And if they're thinking through it, well, it probably shouldn't be the same, right? Because the values of the Gondorians were the faithful, you know, the exiles, which Numenor was not made up of just the faithful. It was made up of also the kingsmen who were in the majority. So the design aesthetics and the culture would should not be identical to the Gondorian culture that we know. It should actually be very different, I think. But there could also be similarities, right? The faithful are not from a different planet, um, so there are going to be some things that are similar. So they might look at, all right, what's the, the design aesthetic that we've seen for art um, relating to, to Gondor? You know, How do we extrapolate that? And they would just think through... The, his, the stories and the histories that the Numenorians would tell to each other, and they would just have to come up with something. And I, for one, am really excited by that because it's not an area where people are going to be able to say, no, that's wrong. No, that's so wrong. No, that's so wrong. Um, granted, that won't stop some people. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's not um, because it's not an area or a place that Tolkien wrote a ton about, there's a lot of room for creative extrapolation. And I hope they try their best to, to adhere as close to what was written as they can. But even doing that, putting their best efforts into that, they're going to have to extrapolate and create art, um, create clothes, create all those aesthetics and come up with it themselves. So it's going to be really fun to see them, see what, see what they came up with. Yeah. I mean, you can already tell that they put so much thought in it based on these pictures. I mean, look at this picture that's in the article. Uh, there's like armor that's so detailed just on the horse and the aesthetic is so unique uh-huh. we've never seen anything like this and right. um you know there's the bit where they have a direct quote saying Numenor is the one place that we are just laser focused on saying we need to get this right it's never been seen before people have ideas of what elves look like or what dwarves look like but those kingdoms might look like but Numenor is a blank canvas so yeah it's probably what i'm most excited to see is uh, Numenor and those characters depicted. Muriel, in particular, I'm really excited about um, seeing that character come to life just as a woman who's a leader in a tricky position um, at a really fraught time. I think uh, seeing that is going to be powerful for viewers. We haven't really seen um, 
a female who is in a position politically of a lot of power yet. I mean, you could maybe argue Aowen, but she was not necessarily the leader of a realm, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, and Muriel is going to be another fun character. I, I think I've mentioned, we both mentioned that she should be a focal point of the show. And lo and behold, it looks like she may be. Um, she's a tragic figure mm-hmm. and her arc will be juxtaposed against the arc of Numenor as a whole because she ends up, you know, when Numenor, you know, gets destroyed by Eru, you know, she's trying to climb the Menel Tarma to plead with Eru, but just too late. You know, it's it's just a very, very tragic end for a tragic Major character. Major spoiler you know, alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we did it at the top of the show. We're covered. Uh, <laughs> we can tell the ending. Um, but another thing that was interesting in this article this article or these articles confirm that the rift between the faithful and the Kingsmen, so the faithful being basically Elendil's people, Elendil becomes the leader, leader of the faithful, and it's those Numenorians who continue to worship the Valar and be friendly with the elves. Um, and there's a rift that arises between them and the Kingsmen. Uh, that would be all basically all the other Numenorians who are getting a little bitter about the fact that they have to die where the elves don't. And so they start turning against the elves, turning against the Valar. And that becomes sort of the uh, a big part of why Ferrazone ends up trying to assault Valinor and downfall of Numenor, etc. So this article confirms that the rift between those two groups will indeed be a major plot line, plot line, and that we're picking up in Numenor's Twilight. Now I think it's just worthy worth noting that this is the first time any source has confirmed, as far as I know, that these two groups will indeed be represented as they are in the book and that the rift between them will be part of the driving force of the narrative. I, I think we all assumed it would be because it, it would be so important for that to be the case. But you never know what kind of liberties people will take. You never know what changes creative folks think they need to make for it to work on screen. Maybe they muck it up or completely change it. But it sounds like from this article, and I'll read a quote here, they're really sticking pretty true. So, quote, Numenorean royals are human but have elvish blood. And for years, they've been friends with their immortal counterparts. Over time, however, a schism appears as some residents continue to pledge their loyalty to the elves and the godlike Valar, while others ponder a more modern, independent future and become increasingly afraid of their own mortality. Uh, And then another quote, But Rings of Power picks up in the twilight of the Great Kingdom as factions clash about remaining loyal to the elves and the angelic Valar in the West. So it's just nice to get some confirmation that this central storyline will be represented, and it sounds like, in a way that's very consistent to what I would expect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to get the political turmoil aspect is is really exciting. It's um, it's going to be the time that we want to see Numenor depicted, the, the period of time that we really want to see Numenor depicted. Um, obviously, we'll want to see Sauron there in Numenor wreaking havoc, but I think that our Farazone is going to serve that, play that function, play that role in this season of winding people up, turning them to, quote unquote, the dark side. Yeah, it's cool that there is a slow burn also leading up to Sauron even getting there because we know we have that to look forward to. And sort of a subnote here from that quote, I like that it mentions that we're reaching Numenor in the twilight of the realm. This just relates to the issue of time compression and how they're approaching that. So mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if they were going to start the show and pretend that the Kingsmen hadn't arisen yet. Um, and that mm-hmm. maybe we see the rise of the Kingsmen with Farazone. Like that's the first time they emerge, right? So they were going to compress like 
a thousand years of political turmoil and strife and the divisions of those two factions emerging, that they were going to jam that into like the first season. So it would start in the first season and then we'd see its progression through the end of the fifth season. But they're not really doing that. At least I'm, I'm extrapolating from the fact they refer to the fact that twi- uh, Numenor is in its twilight. So they're saying, all right, it is the end, near the end of Numenor. And um, we're picking up and the king's men are already established. Like that political turmoil is already present and we're picking up in the middle of that political drama. So that's just an interesting, you know, note to, to you know, put a pin in that, I guess, because mm-hmm. I've always had a lot of questions about how they're going to accomplish time compression. And so all these little nuggets and, and data points that relate to where we are in the relative historical timelines of Numenor and Middle Earth and all that. They're just, I, I like taking note of them so we can kind of figure out where we're going. Definitely. And just to jump to something else we noted, the showrunners themselves made a note that Tolkien never wanted his stories to directly echo real world politics in case some mm. of this is sounding familiar, but they feel the same way about the Rings of Power. Um, so still, yeah, Payne points out there's something deeply relatable and timely about the anxieties and political divisiveness racking this fictional island. Um, and I think as I've grown a little older, I want to see a little more political intrigue happen on screen. I think there's slightly less of it in Lord of the Rings, but I think that was what was so appealing about Game of Thrones to me was the political aspect of all of it. And I think that this show, it's not obviously not going to be like Game of Thrones, but I think political intrigue is always fun to watch and exciting to watch. So I look forward to that aspect of the show. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how they accomplish that while remaining true to the tone of Tolkien's text because he didn't really write any stories in full uh, in full detail that had to do with political strife. I mean, certainly he created the Numenorean plotline, right? But he only ever sketched it out. So he never got to see how he would have approached a full-length narrative version of the Numenorean plotline. Now, we, we may get to see that in the upcoming Fall of Numenor book uh, that collects all of his essays on the subject, or at least you know, we may get to see a little more insight into into details, but we we never saw saw how he would approach the characters and the character development and the dialogue between the warring factions. You know, so I wish we had been able to see that because he would have, uh, you know, it would have been beautiful to see. But they're gonna have to do a Game of Thrones esque political drama, but with a tone completely different from Game of Thrones. So that'll be fun to see how they pull that off. Do we need to start a book club for the new book? On Numenor before the show drops. Does it come out before the show drops? Is it November? <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't. It's coming out after. Yeah, it's no. I think it's November is what I, what I remember. So it'll be coming out after the show. So <laughs> I, I guarantee there's going to be some Tolkien fans uh, who are going to read The Fall of Numenor after the show comes out and criticize the showrunners for not staying true to Tolkien because something in the show is inconsistent with what was in this text, even though the text was not released <laughs> before the show came out. you know. But somebody's going to do that. I guarantee it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to read it definitely. So if followers want to read along, you know, you can always oh, yeah. message us, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to say when that book finally does come out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that will be a, a lot of our um, pre-season content before season two. Right, because we'll read through the fall of Numenor, maybe talk about how that informs our 
perception and experience of the first season we've already watched and if it changes what we look forward to in season two. Um, and to put a finer point on what I just said, I really, I'm not going to be looking at it to see like consistency between the lore because the book's not out. So it would be unfair to hold the showrunners to, to, to any standard to be consistent with a book that was never released, but it'll be fun to read that book and talk about it in the context of the show. Definitely. Hey, have you heard about our sponsor, Four Cats Boutique? So I just pulled up their website to have a look right now, and I am seeing bookmarks, earrings, uh, jewelry, pr- art prints, um, cards. I see uh, Fantastic Four. I see Moon Knight. Wheel of Time is here. Star Wars. Lots and lots of fandoms. Lots of really gorgeous artwork. Lots of collectibles. Things to hang on your wall. Definitely a site worth checking out. And of course, Lord of the Ring things as well. So definitely check them out. That's Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's number four, cats with a K, number four, Four Cats Boutique. Check them out. I have new respect for DW's job. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) All right. So next point I think is that's worth talking about. What roles do Muriel and Farazan hold in the show? The article says, quote, the island of Numenor is ruled by the queen regent, Muriel. And then elsewhere, it says Muriel is aided by her close counsel, Farazon. Now, I think this is worth noting because a queen regent is not the queen. Okay, so it means a queen regent. Regent means someone who rules in someone else's stead. So I, I, I think it would be like the mother of an, an infant king, for example, would be a queen regent ruling in, in place of their you know, son, who is technically king, but too young to, to rule the kingdom. Or what would be the case here, um, a daughter who is ruling in place of her father. Uh, because Tar Palantir is her father, who was the king of Numenor. And that would have to be the situation here if she is a queen regent. And we haven't seen Tar Palantir anywhere, Mm-mm. but if she's queen regent, it has to mean that he's still alive. Unless that, that phrase was misused in the article. Now, I want to read a, a like one-line quote from the Silmarillion, the Calabeth portion of the Silmarillion. Um, which is where we get all of our Numenor stuff. That's basically all we get from the Silmarillion that talks about the uh, ascendance of Muriel to the throne or like, you know, the way that should have happened. It's basically one sentence, quote, and it came to pass that Tar Palantir grew weary of grief and died. He had no son, but a daughter only whom he named Muriel in the elven tongue. And to her now by right and the laws of the Numenorians came the scepter. But Farazan took her to wife against her will, doing evil in this, and evil also in that the laws of Numenor did not permit the marriage, even in the royal house, of those more nearly akin than cousins in the second degree. I.e., they are first cousins. Gross. And when they were wedded, he seized the scepter into his own hand, taking the title of Ar-Farazon, Tar-Kalion in the elven tongue, and the name of his queen he changed to Ar-Zimraphel. So, according to the Calabeth, she was, it sounds like, I always interpreted that to mean she was in line to get the scepter. She was supposed to become queen, but Erfurzon forcefully wedded her. Exactly what that means, you know, you could interpret that a number of ways. All of them are bad. All of them are negative. All of them, yes, right. <laughs> All of them are bad. All of them are very bad. Uh, <laughs> but that's, she was never actually ruling as a queen. Or maybe you could imagine that she was ruling as a queen very briefly before his, you know, however he uh, forced her to marry him. I assume that there was some sort of political power play involved that she was 
put in a position like backed up against a wall figuratively where she had to marry him to stop some sort of like polit- political calamity. That's kind of always what I imagined. But none of that's like written in the text exactly. It just says she was supposed to get the scepter when Tar- Palantir died, um, but Farazon married her. And so I was curious when uh, I saw all the stuff about Muriel, Queen Muriel, Queen Muriel, Queen Muriel in the promotional material. So I was like, all right, they're making her a queen for a while. So they're going to like stretch out the period from when she takes the scepter, like uh, Tar Palantir dies. She becomes queen, like legitimately queen for a while. And then f- somehow Farazone will finagle away to marry her. And then once they're married, he'll take the scepter. So I thought that's what they were doing. I was like, all right, that's a creative liberty that it certainly could be consistent with the text and it would make sense. But I think what they're doing now, having heard that she is queen regent, I think it's something a little different. And if you remember at the very start of that sentence in the Silmarillion, and it came to pass that Tar Pilantir grew weary of grief and died. So I think what they're doing maybe is Tar Pilantir near the end of his life, he's just, he's basically incapacitated. He's not doing his job. He's sad or whatever. He's weary of grief. In, in a way that is so severe that he can't perform his duties as king. And so she is effectively ruling the kingdom in his stead as queen regent. And I don't know how long she'll have been in that role. I'll assume it sounds like she's pretty firmly entrenched in this position. Um, that's what it sounds like. But so I think that is kind of interesting new information. Tar, Tar Palantir, I would guess, is still alive, but not ruling. And Muriel is ruling in his stead. And so at some point, whether in the, probably not in the first season, but maybe in the second season or or who knows how long it'll take, Tar Palantir will die and then there will be a major power struggle. And I would actually wonder, we know that Muriel from other leaks, we know that Muriel goes to war in Middle Earth. I wonder if Tar Palantir dies while she's gone. That's when Farazone swoops in, uses that opportunity to consolidate power, start really ruling in her absence. Yeah, I mean, I think you might be right. Based on what they're releasing, they probably wouldn't release images of the aging Tar Palantir, right? Because they're releasing all these images of young, vigorous, or somewhat young and vigorous, exciting characters, and nobody's really going to recognize Tar Palantir. Um, And also, he's probably decrepit and um, heartbroken at this point. So... Mm-hmm. It would make sense He's that we haven't bummer. seen him yet, but I like that. I like that theory, um, and I could definitely see that as the perfect beginning to the series because it still leaves a lot yes. of room for us to see um, the transformation and evolution of the people of Numenor and how more and more of them are leaving the faithful and you know falling victim to worshiping darker forces. Um, So it still leaves a lot of breathing room for that story to unfold. But we're also going to see the slow takeover of our fair zone. Right. And, you know, part of Tar Palantir's grief is, so the Kingsmen, that faction that was turning away from Valinor and the Valar and the elves, had really taken hold when Tar Palantir became king. But he was of the faithful. Mm -hmm. So he kind of started reining Numenor back in or trying to. But he really couldn't right the ship. You know, he couldn't get them going in the right direction. And so I think that's kind of part of why he was weary with grief. He was kind of like, this isn't working. I'm kind of giving up here. And uh, and then he dies. And Erfurzon, like, really, all right, now it's Kingsmen all day. Um, so 
you know, his grief will be, be uh, a symptom or should be a symptom of the existing political discord in Numenor. So another thing that's part and parcel with this, Arpharazone is described as counselor. Now that's an interesting choice of words. And I'd also note there's been no mention whatsoever in any of the marketing materials that they are cousins. And I wonder if they are going to excise that just with it being, you know, we've seen enough incest in our fantasy shows lately. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, maybe they don't want, just don't want to mess with that part of it. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, yeah, I don't think that people who aren't major fans are gonna, are gonna know or care about that. It's like a tidbit that I probably wouldn't keep in if I were considering that it's not very digestible for Mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, for a lot of the world, not all of the world, but a lot of the world. But it wasn't that much of an issue in Game of Thrones, and they were brother and sister in that instance. So, I mean, it's surprising, <laughs> right? People just watched it and they just kind of accepted it by the end, or maybe not accepted it, but it was pretty incendiary. I, I you know, yeah. certainly it was a conversation point for a lot of people. Oh yeah, for sure. But and the only the only reason I think they would want to steer away from it is. Not because it's too touchy a subject matter for Tolkien or for Tolkien fans, just because it is. it would feel too similar to Game of Thrones. Hmm. And um, so you might get the casual fan going, oh, look, they're just trying to do a Game of Thrones thing. You know, they would think that they're trying to jump on the Game of Thrones bandwagon by including an incestuous relationship. <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> um, and so maybe they're just like, it's not super important in their minds, so they're just going to pull it out. Maybe that's what they're doing. Or maybe they'll keep it in and we just haven't heard it yet and they're trying to not reveal that too soon so it certainly could be that as well yeah i mean i'm fine either way i think the more notable thing is kind of our next bullet point that we want to talk about yeah okay so this article we've already talked about the fact that azildur has a sister Uh, we previously thought her name was karini or karine and we talked a little bit about the name and how that doesn't sound quite right. It's like kind of a French name and how does it fit in? Okay, so that's not actually her name. That was just a code name to throw us all off, which it very successfully did. <laughs> um, so Isildur's sister's name is going to be Iarian. So Iarian should sound familiar. And I'm, I'm hitting the E-R pretty heavily. It's probably Arendil, Iarendil. It was E-A-R, right? So and her name is E-A-R. Yen, so Yarian, it's the same prefix on the name as Yarendil, so um, it's kind of a, a nod, a doff of the cap, a tip of the hat to the elf that saved the entire world. So that's a sort of historical connection for that I name. I like it much better. Oh, yeah, so much better. I have no complaints. And she's going to be played by Emma Horvath, and this character is invented for the series, and this is from the article, This bright and ambitious young woman has dreams of being an architect. Horvath describes her as being, quote, on the cusp of womanhood, adding that, quote, she's still insecure and naive about the way the world works. The article goes on to say that Tolkien wrote that Elendil had two sons, Isildur and Anarion. And in parentheticals, the article says, at the start of Rings of Power, Anarion is off screen. Ooh, that's a huge sigh of relief for me. I was worried that they were going to cut him out altogether. And he's, yeah, he he does have a lot of significance and a good storyline. Like they could do a lot with his storyline. There's a lot of like, yeah, there's a lot of bullet points and then they could fill in a lot of the text in between with him. And I think they're going to do that. I'm I'm personally really happy with this. I mean, I think they're trying to, just by looking that that 
awkward family photo in the article. <laughs> like, have you seen yeah. a more <laughs> awkward family photo in your life of all of them portrayed? Right. Um, you can see there's just these two women. And if you cut out this invented character, there's one. And I think they're being really yeah. thoughtful about the male to female ratio. And I personally appreciate that. I know it's so controversial, but I'm curious about this character. Uh, and I'm I'm sort of glad that we'll get another female Numenorian in in, uh, in the royal family, quote unquote. Yeah, and this is the first time we've heard anything about what her character is going to be like. Um, ambitious, dreams of being an architect, which I wonder if that will be an important part of her plotline in any way, or if it's just kind of like how she starts. You know, bright, ambitious young woman dreams of being an architect, but then all this stuff happens. That's the fo- you know that's the focus of the plot. Um, or I wonder if we'll see her designing buildings you know actually uh being an architect in the show but uh clearly she's she's young you know on the cusp of cusp of womanhood so she's still very young and uh says expressly that she's naive but we also know that she's very very close to Isildur we've heard leaks from fellowship of fans about that so they're gonna have a really really close tight-knit relationship on the show um she'll influence him i would bet um so i i'm I am, for one, like you, excited to see this character. I'm glad they added her. You know, to the extent that I'm generally, I don't want them to change anything, right? That's still my default setting. <laughs> I don't want them to add anything. But at the same time, um, this isn't like an inconsistency that's offensive to anything. You know, Tolkien wrote that uh, Ellen Deal had two sons, and he only wrote that. And it would make sense because those are the two sons. Those are the ones who took over the the kingship in Gondor, so they were historically relevant. It doesn't mean if they had had Elendil had have six children, I would have been okay with that too. You know, <laughs> just add kids. But um, I agree. Just adding some more female characters, it makes it will make the plot and the characters and the dialogue more interesting because it adds another attribute to um, what's going on. You know, you want to see that part of Numenorean culture. The the the, the female half absolutely um and, um, and i'm you don't want to just have a story about boys no we we already got that we don't want that again um but i am also yeah, i've read the Hobbit. yeah i'm also so excited <laughs> to see isildur and his character play out and i love the shot of him on the boat that we get in the article uh, maxine baldry set sail as the young isildur on the lord of the rings the rings of power he just looks earnest here and eager and everything i want out of the young um a young Isildur. So, you know, his storyline is going to be really cool, too. His uh, his character arc is going to be really great, I think. Yeah. And we do get a couple things about his character mm-hmm. arc. Uh, he's described as, you see Isildur as a young man at a crossroads. And elsewhere in the articles, quote, at this point, however, he's just a young sailor following in his father Elendil's footsteps. And then referring to Elendil, the article says, even though we know he becomes king in Middle-earth after the downfall, quote, but here, he's just a Numenorean sailor. So that's really interesting. Both The comments both about Elendil and also Isildur. Um, I wonder if they're changing the significance of their title as Lords of Endunie, you know, that whole a- aspect of it. Um, or if they're deliberately portraying the lords of Andunia is you know just being more humble yeah we're lords we have a significant political role but we're we don't think ourselves above anyone else um i want to talk about that a little bit more in depth when we get into the the clothes and the clothing choices when you start looking at the photos 
But this is so let's put a pin in that. I just think it's really, really interesting that potentially they're early on just going to be simple sailors. Yeah. Well, I think we should look at the photos. Yeah, let's let's do that. All right. So I don't necessarily want to go photo by photo. There are plenty of people that are doing that and zooming in on every square inch of every photo. Um, I just want to pick out some highlights. And first up here, we have the world's most awkward family photo, (laughs) as you mentioned. Like, you know how when you're reading articles and there are those like fake BS articles on the bottom, it's like, and, and the one that I feel like there's always an article about most awkward family photos. And it's like, this is know, it. This shows like up. A, a family doing a family pyramid or something. This picture would be on that list. Okay. It would be <laughs> so much going on here. <laughs> Everyone looks unhappy. All right. Everyone's got a sourpuss on. No one's touching anyone else. Everyone's got their hands to themselves. They're all like a foot away from each other. Um, you know, they're observing mild COVID protocols, even in Numenor. They're social <laughs> distancing from nobody each other. Nobody likes each other. Yeah. 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 Un- uh, no. Not required and uh, for no medical purpose, just because they don't like each other. <laughs> a lot of people are talking about how similar Elendil looks to Aragorn. Like, uh, yeah, I guess. I, I mean, in what way? Definitely less grungy. The hair, the sword, the sort of he might be like the romantic, the heartthrob of Numenor. Yeah, I see a little bit of Fabio going on there. I mean, boy, that <laughs> hair is nice and wavy. It's some nice wavy hair. I would say they're all verging on too groomed, except that they are sort of royalty, right? They're going to be the most groomed of anyone. It would make sense that they're all all groomed. Maybe they're natural highlights. That's what I'm saying. Well, he is a sailor, so he's out on the (laughs) the open seas. This is that natural windblown ocean hair. Steely gray eyes, it looks like. Mm, I'm in love already. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it would make sense that he would look like Aragorn. Um, I don't know that I see a resemblance other than just, you know, white guy with a beard and long, longish hair. But I think maybe people that's just all it want. Takes. Yeah, that's probably all it takes. Um, I think the I think the outfits are great. The costumes are great. They all look pretty on point mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. So there are only a couple that I really want to dwell on. Again, just Muriel. You know, we'll we'll talk more about the fashion in general in a second, but. In terms of specific things about these photos, Muriel is just fire. Like every every outfit, every shot that I've seen, I think it is so perfect, so on point, so good. I mean, just look at her on the, the horse. Her horse is decked out in matching fish scale armor. Um, her f- flowing cape with like gold embroidery. Her sword looks pretty dope. I mean, green gems. Someone's. Someone needs to tell me the significance of the design of these gems. You know, you see mm-hmm. the the hilt and the pommel or the the handle. You got the, the waves, got the wave detail. Five gems. So, like, and look at even her skirt is basically like gold, finely uh, woven gold. It's like all gold. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And again, we'll we'll talk about that, but man, absolutely. So, and here's another shot of Muriel of her with her. Uh, her posse of cavalry. This is actually the first time I saw the sun helmet. And I was like, whoa, oh my, you know, holy cow. It really jumped out of me. And I just thought it was awesome. And you see it, you know, right next to, there's a sort of a standard bearer uh, sitting on a horse right behind her and he's holding the sign and it just matches perfectly. Her her helmet matches the, the Numenorean sun symbol that's on the standard there. But we see Isildur seated next to her. Um, but... I just think Muriel's design is 
is really top-notch. Yes, it's elaborate and beautiful and indicative of the culture that she's in. Yeah. So one specific thing I wanted to point out about the photos before we get into some sort of general observations here. We get one behind-the-scenes shot. And A, I want to know what's written on this map or scroll that's laid out here. There are secrets there. I want someone to zoom in. Enhance, enhance, enhance. Okay, why isn't that a real feature? <laughs> if we look at the upper right-hand corner, we see some kind of stained glass window. It's like the we see the you know southwesterly quadrant of a circular stained glass window. Um, it's got yellow and blue. Okay, that's interesting. We have stained glass windows in Numenor. So I, I think I like that. And I posted about that on Twitter. And um, I happen to notice someone else on Facebook post about how they picked up a book of Tolkien's illustrations because he was an artist. He was not like a professional artist, but he, he drew, drew yeah. great drawings. Sketched all the time. And he was always drawing maps. Like he was very visually oriented. So as part of uh, his work on, on this world, he was always doodling and sketching and, and he created um, sigils and, you know, he designed Feanor's star and Elendil's star or um, Arendil's star and so he worked on that stuff, and as part of that, he created versions of like Numenorean tiles and textures, uh, or, uh, textiles, uh, because like mm-hmm. you know, think about ancient Romans and and Egyptians and the Byzantine Empire, they had uh, they would weave or incorporate designs into tiles and textiles, and so he was like, I, I'm working off of that tradition, and he designed some, and so I have, I, I pulled the screenshot that design and i you know it's we see up here at the top a sort of circular uh a tile with a circular design in the middle that to me is reminiscent of the circular stained glass window that we see behind the scenes not that it's identical or anything like that i mean there are clear differences but the general aesthetic that we're seeing just a glimpse of in the stained glass window in this behind the scenes shot to me is reminiscent of these Numenorean textiles and tiles that the professor himself designed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It almost looks Turkish to me. Oh, that's interesting. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you in general here. Where do you place the design aesthetic of the clothes and everything? You know, not just the tiles here, but everything you're seeing of Numenor. What would you compare it to? I mean, I think they really got it right. But when I see... For example, the headpieces across the forehead that Muriel is wearing, things like that. It definitely looks Egyptian, a little bit Egyptian to me. And I know that was something that inspired yeah. him. Um, but also looking at these textiles, it it's definitely taken. It looks like it's taken from a, like a mishmash of different cultures, right? Like I said, Turkish right. before, just with the shapes and sort of the um, the diamond shapes and the really... Uh, beautiful colors. Um, so I it, that is so cool that you pick that up with the window in the background. Um, and it's stuff like that 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 shows you just how how seriously they're taking this. That they really are are thinking about what he wanted for the design. Um, and so far right, so good. It, it looks amazing. It's really popping on screen. Yeah. So I had a. F- I had a few different uh, notes, you know, 
topics that I wanted to talk about that I pulled out from these photos rather than going photo by photo. Um, and you already mentioned one, the Egyptians and how the Egyptian style maybe influence what we're seeing here on screen. And I think that would be really right on point if that's what they're doing because the professor himself compared Numenor to Egypt. So first let's back up and remember that Numenor and the downfall of Numenor was basically Tolkien's version of the Atlantis myth. It was influenced very much on the Atlantean myth, which is Atlantis was, you know, a mythological city, highly advanced, far beyond the time, uh, the, the technological and artistic skill of anybody else at the time. It was an island, and then it sank um, for X, Y, and Z reasons, part of the Atlantis myth. Obviously, that parallels Numenor. And in the Atlantean myth, there were exiles, survivors of the downfall, that populated regions that we know of, including, they had settlements, including in Egypt. So the idea is that Egypt, and there's others also, but that like Egypt was one of the settlements where Atlantean exiles sort of found their way there, settled there, and populated that region. That's part of the Atlantean myth. Also, from one of Tolkien's letters, he says, The Numenorians of Gondor were proud, peculiar, and archaic, and I think are best pictured in, say, Egyptian terms. In many ways, they resembled Egyptians the love of and power to construct the gigantic and massive, and in their great interest in ancestry and in tombs, but not, of course, in theology, in which respect they were Hebraic and even more Puritan. I think the crown of Gondor, the southern kingdom, was very tall like that of Egypt, but with wings attached, not set straight back, but at an angle. The north kingdom had only a diadem, the difference between the north and south kingdoms of Egypt. So Tolkien thought of both Numenor and Gondor in sort of semi-Egyptian terms. And again, this isn't an allegory. He wasn't, you know, these aren't, you shouldn't just pick up Egyptian aesthetics and styles and dump them into Numenor. But it would make a lot of sense if the clothing, the buildings were in some ways inspired by Egypt. And uh, I think we're seeing touches of that, especially like I, I get that from like Muriel's, you know, her sun crown feels kind of Egyptian to me. Not that I don't know that we've seen anything like it in Egypt, but somehow it feels Egyptian. You know, I'm not a scholar on the subject on what uh, the Egyptians actually looked like, but I, I do think we're seeing some influence there. Another feature I wanted to, to point out in a lot of these photos, we get to see uh, the male worn and the armor worn by Muriel and also the cavalry. So so here we go. Here's a good shot of Muriel and the cavalry. And they have armor that's very fishmail inspired. I mean, there's like overlapping layers of, of metal. Um, you know, side note, I'm not sure how on earth they would make this. I mean, it must be very, very flexible. It must be like sewn into fabric so that they can slip their arms through because it's basically very form-fitting. It's like a shirt. Um, and I'm not sure how effective this would be at, uh, turning a blade, but, um, we'll just assume that because they're Numenorians and awesome that it works perfectly, but it's very fish, fish male inspired and right down to the horses, um, the coverage on the horses. And, uh, you know, again, we see this in the regal shot of her, the ceremonial armor that she's wearing in the city square, um, to the battlefield, you know, we're seeing that fish male everywhere. I think that is very appropriate because Numenor, and we know this from a chapter in the Unfinished Tales that describes Numenor as an island, both geographically, but also some of the culture. We know that 
fish was a major, major food source for the Numenorians. They were generally fisher folk. They had fish with many, if not most, meals. Um, there's also a reference that the fisher folk were like of the most hardy stock in Numenor, which is just an interesting side note. I don't know if they'll ever uh, incorporate that. But it would make sense that they would, because fish are so prevalent, that it would somehow work its way into the design of their clothing and their armor. The other thing that I wanted to point out, and we see a lot of horses in these shots, and not anything that's like, we're not seeing a lot of horse iconography or anything like that, um, but horses were a really, really important part of Numenor. And I wanted to make a special note of that because when the original like 24 character posters came out with the people holding um, with just their hands, there was one character, if you'll remember, that was wearing, uh, had like a, a sword that had a horse pommel uh, or a horse handle. And it was speculated that that might be Numenor. And then people were freaking out. They're like, no, Numenorians aren't horse people. That should be Rohan and blah, blah, blah. And people were all upset that, that it might be the case that the Numenorians would have horse iconography worked into their armor and weapons. And, you know, I was thinking at the time, and I want to point out here that horses were very, very important mm-hmm. to Numenor. They were very much a horse people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously that's not referenced very much in the Lord of the Rings because why would it be? We're not in Numenor. And so it wasn't really relevant. But from uh, that same chapter in the Unfinished Tales, quote, In Numenor, all journeyed from place to place on horseback. For in riding the Numenorians, both men and women took delight. And all the people of the land loved horses, treating them honorably and housing them nobly. They were trained to hear and answer calls from a great distance. And it is said in old tales that where there was great love between men and women and their favorite steeds, they could be summoned at need by thought alone. I mean, this just reminds you so much of the relationships between horse and man that we see in the Lord of the Rings. It's like a special relationship. And you see that play out between Gandalf and Shadowfax, right? That they can communicate in this very unique way. Um, And I think that's something that is not talked about or all that much is the relationship between domesticated animals and humans in, in Tolkien's lore. There's like a really special... Um, reverence and respect for that relationship and creation in general. And that's like a really cool part yeah. of Tolkien's world that um, I'm excited that will maybe be depicted um, in this series as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I never really noticed this before, but in the section that talks about how Numenorians can you know, summon their steeds through thought alone, it says that they're able to do that when there is great love between man and woman and the steed. So basically there has to be a romantic love between two partners and, and their steed, or maybe, uh, maybe I'm interpreting it wrong. It doesn't, there doesn't have to be like a romantic love between the two people. And there, and then also they have a, a horse. Maybe it's just saying if there's a love between a man and a horse or a woman and a horse, maybe that's yeah, what that between means. men and women and their favorite but, steed respect respectively. Right, right, right. That would make a little bit more sense. Um, but it would be kind of, <laughs> but it would be interesting if like uh, to have that sort of that strong kinship to a horse, you would have to have, it would only exist if you were like in a loving relationship. If you were blessed with know. a loving monogamous relationship, you also get a steed. <laughs> I wish, I like, I wish I, that I, was I, true. I like the other interpretation better. In real life. I don't want that to be necessary. No, I want that to be necessary. <laughs> Anybody can love their steed. Okay. Anyone can love, can love their, their steed. steed. 
<laughs> regardless. No, but that is really cool. I'm... And um, yeah, horses are going to be, <laughs> we've already seen so many horses in the promo material, right? So, and that we never even talked about the yeah. beautiful shot of Galadriel on the beach um, mm-hmm. riding with Elendil behind her. That is a gorgeous shot. I don't have much to say about it other than that. Wow, that's really beautiful. And um, I wonder what they're talking about. But yeah, horses are. Yeah, in the trailer, it's like slow motion zoomed in on the like she has a scarf or a piece of her dress. Beautiful. And it's like billowing in the wind as she rides. And it's yeah, it's really beautiful. Really beautiful. I wonder I wonder why they're riding on the beach. Um, you know, I was thinking to myself, this is definitely going to be like slow motion. Romantic music is playing. No, you know, not romance not that between, those between those two. That would be that would be interesting. I don't How think could so. she resist with that Fabio I hair? No, he, I mean, as I said, on. he might be the romantic. Uh, he might be the heartthrob of Numenor. We'll see. I didn't notice it until you pointed it out to me, but I also didn't notice that Aragorn was a heartthrob until someone pointed it out oh, to me. I'm like, oh, I yes, guess, I guess he's a big heartthrob. time, big time. <laughs> like my mom would only watch his scenes. Basically, she'd be like, "Oh, this show's not bad." I mean, yeah, to this day, yeah, I stand. As the Gen Zers say, I stand Aragorn. Is that how they? That's not even how they would use it. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> that is <laughs> ma- major fail at trying to be hip, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> it's lit, fam. Okay, moving on to Numenorean fashion. <laughs> we said we'd yes. get to it, and it's uh, the title of I've... the episode, so we have to get to it before our time uh, runs out. I- I'm excited to talk about this. Very, very excited to talk about this. I-, I just think it's very, very interesting. Um, and really what I want to get into is what can the fashion choices that we've seen in these photos tell us about their characters? And one thing that really jumped out to me is you see Isildur, look at him on his ship wearing just a plain rough spun green, you know, work outfit that is identical to all the sailors. All right. He's dressed exactly the same as all the other sailors. You get Ellen Deal, he's riding here. It's, you know, that's a nice that's a nice outfit, but it's nothing fancy. There's no gold, there's no gems, nothing like that. Okay, simple, simple outfit. And we'll go back to the the family photo. Again, Isildur, he's in work clothes. Elendil's got a nice breastplate and, you know, a nice again, nice outfit, but it's not adorned by anything. Now let's compare that to our lords and ladies, our royalty. Okay, Farazone, I mean, gold all the way through his robe, decked out. He's got this, I don't even know what this thing, he's got a gold belt. He's got a gold, like, half suspender. It's, like, on his left side. (laughs) I don't think it's holding anything up. I just think it's meant to look awesome. Yeah, it's very ornate. It's all very Very ornate ornate. and elaborate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And And he's bejeweled, too. Every shot of Muriel. He's got rings. She's got rings. Yeah, look at He's got rings. He's green gem in that ring, which reminds me of the green gem in her sword mm-hmm. in those shots. She is decked out in every single shot, which makes mm-hmm. sense because she is the queen regent. But she's got these, you know, killer bracelets, uh, gold bracelets with green gems in them. Um, her belt has like blue sapphires woven into. There's pearl. There's silver around her belt. It's it's bedazzled all the way down. The dress itself seems like it's. Spun with silver. I mean, it is insane, the opulence of all of her outfits. And we only see the one outfit for Farazone, but it, it's got its own element of opulence built in. Okay. 
and there's so there's an there's an obvious visual story that's being told there. Like in a moment, in a flash, you can see Farazone is concerned with looks and his legacy and appearing powerful and being powerful. Isildur and Elendil aren't. They're simple men. They work hard, and their clothes reflect that. And why this is significant, if there are any listeners here who are not familiar with the background of Isildur and Elendil, I think just very quickly give a primer on that. They are lords, very, very high up. They're of royal blood. That's why Elendil is, you know, takes on the, the mantle of king of the exiled Numenorians. He's actually of royal blood. So the lords of Andunier, and that would be Elendil and his father in their line, they're named after their ancestral home. And Andunier is the main city. It's sort of in the upper left-hand quadrant of Numenor. It's, it's a major capital, not the capital, but it is a major city. And um, that's where they sort of resided for a long time. That's their, their power base. They were descended from Silmarion, daughter and eldest child of Tar, uh, Tar Elendil, the fourth king of Numenor. The laws of Numenor at that time would not allow her to rule as queen, so she wedded Elatan of Andunier and took a residence there. Her father gifted her the Ring of Bear here, and it passed down the line of lords as a precious heirloom. Their son Valendil would be named the first lord of Andunier in about the seventh century of the second seventh century of the second age. Now, notably, the laws changed later on in the Aldarian and Renda story. King Aldarian changed the law so that he could pass the scepter to his only child, who was a woman. Um, so the lords of Andunier are descended from the royal line. And actually, uh, Silmarion, she would have been queen under later laws. They're of royal blood. They're always closely linked to the royal household. They're advisors. They're very well respected, even up until the end. That's why even though they're the faithful and the kingsmen are trying to stamp out the faithful, they don't take aggressive action against the, against uh, the Lords of Andunier for quite a long time because they have, they're too well-respected and, and loved. They are the leaders, Elendil and Isildur, his son, they're, they're the leaders of this really important house of noble lineage in Numenor. And yet, they just started mellowing out in their work clothes. And we heard in the article earlier Isildur is just a, a simple sailor. Elendil's just a simple sailor, or at least that's how they think of themselves. Unless the show's like totally changing things and you know taking out their noble lineage, they consider themselves to be just just one of the people, men of the people, and I think that's really really important here. Um, also underscoring the significance of their fashion choices are some passages from that same chapter in the Unfinished Tales that talk that describes Numenor. From that chapter, we learn, quote, The Adain brought with them to Numenor the knowledge of many crafts and many craftsmen who had learned from the Eldar, besides perver- preserving lore and traditions of their own. But they could bring with them few materials, save for the tools of their crafts. And for long, all metals in Numenor were precious metals. They brought with them many treasures of gold and silver and gems also, but they did not find these things in Numenor. They loved them for their beauty, and it was this love that first aroused in them cupidity in later days when they fell under the shadow and became proud and unjust in their dealings with lesser folk of Middle-earth. Of the elves of Oresia in the days of their friendship, they had at times gifts of gold and silver and jewels, but such things were rare and prized in all the earlier centuries, until the power of the kings was spread to the coasts of the east. Okay, so to summarize that, they loved jewels. They loved gold and jewels, but it was their love of that treasure that led to their downfall, their desire to come to Middle-earth as conquerors and subjugate uh, middlemen in order to take all their stuff. So it is not a positive thing. Also, 
those jewels and the gold and everything, it's not found in Numenor naturally. They can't mine it. There aren't gold mines in Numenor. There aren't gem mines in Numenor. They have to get it from other places. Now, they get it as gifts from the elves of Tolaresia, who with whom they had a lot of discourse, but they don't get to make it themselves. So that's why I think we see here in a lot of these shots, um, uh, uh, even the nobles, you know, the, we see the shot of Farazone and the court of Numenor, a lot of the nobles in the background, we don't see a lot of jewelry. Um, we see fine silks. These are very nice clothes, certainly. They, they scream nobility, but there's, they're, they're light on jewelry, not a lot of rings, necklaces, um, no gold, no gems. There's gold thread uh, woven into all the silks, but again, it's, it's just cloth. Okay, so we don't see a lot of jewels and gold and things like that. But we do see a lot of jewels and gold on Farazone and on Muriel. Now, maybe it's excusable in Muriel's case because she is, in fact, the queen. But I think in, both ca- in either case, it's supposed to telegraph by juxtaposing Elendil and Isildur, who do not wear any gold or jewels or even these fine silks. They are very, very simple clothing. We're supposed to juxtapose their outfits with those of Farazone and Muriel, who are, you know, they're bling-blinging it up, very, very fancy. And that tells us something about Elendil and Isildur, about their, um, their humility. They're just leaders of men. They don't think themselves above anyone else. And uh, so that's going to be, a v- it's obvious just visually. You don't even have to know this background to appreciate what it's trying to tell, the story it's trying to tell. But I think understanding that background about Numenor and the fact that that gems and gold have to be obtained elsewhere and they're coveted, they're hoarded. That makes more significant the fact that Farazone is indeed one of those people who covets, covets the gold and he decks himself out in gold. Whereas Elendil and Isildur don't go in for that kind of thing. They're not coveting the gold. They're not going to great lengths to take it from other places. The, even his uh, Elendil sword is very, very simple. Not nearly, no gems. It's got a white handle. Um, we can see it in the, the family the family portrait here, if you zoom in, it looks like a nice sword. It's got, I think, brass on the end. Maybe it's a brass mixed with gold. But the handle is just white. I don't know if it's ivory, but it's simple uh, compared to the sword of Muriel, which is gold, gold, <laughs> and bedazzled with the jewels. So I think that we can really learn a lot just at a glimpse of who these characters are going to be by looking at their, their outfits and how humble the clothing of Isildur and Elendil are. So I think that'll do it for today. Lots of cool stuff in, in these Numenorean shots, and um, I'm just going to be reading and rereading the Akalabeth and uh, the descriptions of Numenor and the Unfinished Tales because they're short, they're easy to read, and there are little nuggets in there. And I think we can uh, compare a lot of the shots that we see to the in- that limited information we get to try and extrapolate things about these characters and where they're going, where they've been, and what role they're going to play in the narrative. So thanks for stopping by uh, and hanging out with Jen and I. Come back next week. I think our next episode should be an all-orc episode. Uh, It's already recorded in the can, and so we'll just be... uh, We were joined by Reading Tolkien Pod. Those guys were great. But, you know, if Amazon dumps something new on us, then we're just going to... We're going to stop what we're doing, drop everything, and we're going to talk about that. So uh, we are all hands on deck right now and we're just having a great time. There's so much fun stuff coming out. And thank you for coming along with us. Be sure to go check out Watch Party, Wheel of Time, Rurik, Saima, and the panel. 
of newbies. Their discussions are always great. And of course, be sure to keep an ear out for, for news about a watch party of Ice and Fire, which will be coming out soon and we will be announcing an official release date shortly. So with that, thanks a lot. We'll see you soon. May the hair on your toes never fall out.